Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Film Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson from Thompson on Hollywood. And Ann, last week we ended on a cliffhanger talking a little bit about Furious 7, the latest entry in the Fast and Furious franchise, and possibly the last one, or at least the last one, obviously, to start Paul Walker, who, who died before its completion. Now we've both seen it, although I have to tell you, even sitting through 130 minutes of some pretty impressive action sequences, I'm, I'm kind of hard-pressed to tell you exactly what happened in this movie. There was a lot of kind of confusing plot stuff that flew by, but, you know, it obviously... It sort of doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, it's, it's not the point. It's sort of like one of those things where it's like a, it's like a musical, you know? You, you know that Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers are having some kind of relationship, and there's impediments of the way but what you're really waiting for are the uh musical numbers and in this case it's these amazing action sequences and and what i was sort of fascinated by is the you know how truly gratifying it is on some basic elemental level to have these two equally matched guys vin diesel and jason statham literally ramming into each other at full blast you know and you look at the you're looking you're sitting back and you're going this is really stupid and silly these men are idiots and at the same time it's hugely gratifying when they do it sure i mean it's like the essence of blockbuster stupidity boiled down to its like purest form you know like virility unfettered and illogical to some murky end you know i mean it's its politics are terrible in the way that it celebrates, you know, death and revenge and all that kind of stuff. And all also, the body counts yeah, that are but it doesn't, adding up. There's, there's no real logical specificity to, to what we're watching. I mean, you could... It's just a point, revenge fantasy at this point. Yeah. One guy's bad. The rest of them are good. They're, they're trying to make it up for the, a guy that got killed. And then, but it's also like basic elements of cars, flying and I, I don't know if you remember true lies the james cameron movie with arnold schwarzenegger and oh, jamie how Lee can Curtis. I forget true lies but there true lies, were flying vehicles going into buildings and helicopters smashing that's what this is like or it's like um the brad bird mission impossible which had some pretty amazing pyrotechnics well they go to abu thing. dhabi here too i, I would way. say that both of those movies are superior for one reason alone which is there's a greater sense of actual innovation when it comes to action and suspense. I mean, the Brad Bird movie, I was a little let down by it, but there's an amazing car pileup sequence indoors that really made the movie. And in True Lies, the best scene for me is the the moment when Arnold Schwarzenegger's tied up and given a truth serum and goes on to accurately describe everything he's about to do when he breaks out of those handcuffs. Like, there, there is more sort of a well, refinement. I give James Cameron credit for being a good writer and a good character developer. People like to make fun of him, but he's well, actually very good at it. it. But it's no ridiculous. one's better than James Cameron. James Cameron does this, and Brad Bird does this way better than... James, so so this is the first one, right? By by the by the by the indie, yet another indie director going going Hollywood because James right. Wan directed yeah. it. Yeah, but I mean, it's almost as opposed to Justin Lin, right? Yeah, but it's it's largely indistinguishable. I mean, I, I rewatched 
because it's really moment. about the action yeah, sequences. Exactly. <laughs> and and a lot of that stuff is it's it's not exclusively about the director's innovation. There's a lot of collaboration going on there and also the personality element you know the rock is this one-man army when he says woman i am the cavalry to michelle rodriguez <laughs> that's a great line yeah okay that. so th- there's maybe four Only he could pull that off I-, I counted i think four really great action sequences in a movie that needed more i was personally really disappointed as a whole and i have to say and it- i know it's a touchy subject but the issue i have with the paul walker thing it's not the the kind of the fan element that that comes with this closing in memoriam kind of sequence that that really salutes him. It is what it is because of the kind of connection that people have to that movie. It's more that I'm sorry, he's kind of a flat character even in the context of these movies. And you can see it in Fast 7. The way that this movie pays tribute to him doesn't really make the case that there's that much worth saluting. And, and that's- I'm going to look at it a different way. And here's, here's when I was at um, CinemaCon one time, I happened to hear, I mean, they do it all the time, but, but I happened to hear the guys talking about the family. And that's the theme of the movie is family. But it's also the theme of the people behind the movie that one of the reasons that the Fast and the Furious franchise has been so successful is that they've managed to stay authentic and... and They've stayed true to, you know, really investing in it as as something that they care about. They're not just doing it as a job. And so I believe that in that context, at the end of the movie, what is I thought I thought it was rather well handled, um, actually. Um, it, 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 it ha- it's half in the movie and half out of the movie, and you know that that's not really him. You know that it's 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 his brother. It, you know it's it's a it's a very um, touching sequence that that is their way of saying goodbye to their friend and uh do 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 i want to make any claims for paul walker as one of the great actors of all time no absolutely not but they cared about him and i thought it was a a deft way of handling i guess there's something kind of extraordinary about this sort of multi-million dollar living memorial to somebody you know on on some level i mean it, it seems like it's almost without precedent but i also think you know what's problematic about it is that it doesn't feel like it's actually doing anything in service of the movie itself. You know, if you look at... It's sort of like the closing credits. I mean, it's really not... It's really not... They're saying goodbye to him. They're saying he's he's not going to be part of this anymore. And then in the movie... He's going to stay with his family. Except that it is, it, it's threaded into the movie, and so it should be seen as part of the movie. I mean, I, I thought that, you know, if you look at the way that Heath Ledger's performance in The Dark Knight was received, you know, like that was an interesting moment because the movie wasn't finished yet when he died, but the performance was in the bag, and they were able to basically say goodbye to him by doing justice to his performance. And this, this did not feel artful in the same way and so I, I have more of an issue with it on some level because I think there, there may have been a better way to handle this that, that doesn't have to make it so self-involved you know I mean make well the best I movie. would argue there that they what they're you're uh, I suspect that what's happening here is that you as a film critic are saying this 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 is what they you know this doesn't work aesthetically in in the context of this movie this isn't the best way to handle it but I think what they're doing from the point of view of a studio from the point of view of a franchise from the point of view of of a movie communicating with its fans is giving the fans exactly what they want I, I suppose so, but sometimes giving the fans what they want is giving them things they didn't realize were available to them. I mean, there was one really great shot 
in this movie. And it's, it's uh, sort of played for laughs early on where you see this slow close-up of Paul Walker's face and you think he's about to put the pedal to the metal and instead he's just pulling a minivan up a few paces to pick up his kids. That was great. School. That was very That funny. was such a great moment and that was, that was a great sequence that needed to be what I thought was sort of the send-off was let, let's, let's show this guy transitioning into a new stage of his life and, and they do that in that moment. I, I feel as though perhaps what, what this send-off is is sort of indicative of a franchise that's just not that smart to begin with, and so I can be okay with that. It's just, you know, I, on, on it's a, on not a, a very smart franchise. It's no. not a very smart it franchise. I, I give it credit. And by for, the way, the whole issue of the, the, the you know, I've always given the the franchise credit for diversity. for having women in it yeah. and and being diverse. The the way <laughs> the I love Michelle Rodriguez, and she does the best that she possibly could. But in this one, especially, the two women are definitely the romantic interests. And, you know, don't have, and then there's a lot of babes uh, going on on the side, uh, you know, and, and the guys are ogling the hacker who's so gorgeous in yep. her bikini and yep. everything. Um, you know, I understand this, that men are the main audience for this, but, you know, it, there's ways to do it that are a little more enlightened, I would suggest. And I, I also wonder, I mean, are they going to try to keep this franchise going because the movie's going to make so much money? You know, do we do a reboot? You know, fat, the the third one was actually you know didn't have any of these characters in it. So there are ways to keep this brand alive, you know, without without this character, without any of these characters really. So the message that we get at the end is actually kind of ambiguous, and it'll be well. Where do they go from here? I know my daughter and I were sort of joking around last night. You know, where do they go? Outer space? You know, they should. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, it's like the the, the logic is so ridiculous, and I, and I do appreciate because this is halfway yeah. to a Bond film already. I mean, it's already yeah. a Euro thriller. You know, I mean, basically where they're most effective. You know, I remember the first movie. I remember when it first came out. I remember Joel Cohen talking about it. I remember why it was so. It was really based on stuff that was going on in the streets that was legitimate and authentic and that was one of the reasons why the movie had that incredible grit and why people responded to it and they've got you know this movie especially takes them pretty far away from those roots and when they go back to the to LA and they do the standoff in LA that sort of saves the movie in a yep. way yeah, to, to the extent that it can be saved. Exactly. I mean, you know, the, again, they look for there's like four great sequences, including one amazing one with Paul Walker where he runs up a bus that falls that off. That was the great. So it's worth it's worth seeing for that it's, kind but of. That's experience. the other thing. You see the bus finally. You know, you see these 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 airborne. You know, expensive vehicles. You know, crashing. You know, and burning. And there's something very satisfying about it. In a in a very devious way, it's like it, it taps into it to our inner desire for ridiculous violence. I have to say something about the these franchises that I do find intriguing is is the way in which they provide new opportunities for studios. To innovate, you know, Justin Lin was uh, an indie director who came out of the festival circuit when he directed The Fast and the Furious, and and James Wan was somebody along similar lines from the genre scene. So, you know, there are opportunities there for a film like the, for another film like this to to be in a, you know a chance for somebody else to show what they can do. And I've been thinking about that because another topic we've been throwing around lately is the way that indie directors can go Hollywood in possibly constructive ways. Just a couple of hours ago, 
We heard that Alex Ross Perry, who did Listen Up Philip, and more recently worked with Elizabeth Moss again on Queen of Earth, is going to make a studio, or at least for now, he's going to write he's a writing. studio. He's just writing. Writing a, a live-action version of Winnie the Pooh about the Christopher Robin character. Um, but again, uh, this which, is not... Which made a lot of people look at their Twitter feeds and check the date right, on the deadline story to see if it was April Fool's yeah, it, or not. It, it, it I was not the only one like who it. did that. The Vulture like headline it. says it's an April. It's not an April Fool's except, joke. Except that it's not the first instance of this. I mean, David Lowry, who was a producer on on Alex's films, uh, just finished up shooting an, a, a live action Pete's Dragon remake. So you know he made. And he was originally just hired to write that too, exactly, and then they so. gave him the job of, of directing it. I would say that David Lowry is 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 more. Uh, of a candidate for someone who could work well with others than <laughs> Alex, Alex Ross Perry, but 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 we'll see. I mean, th- th- I think the reason we, I think the reason everybody raised their eyebrows was because he's such an, a, a sort of maverick, cranky New Yorker. Mm. You know, I mean, just such a classic sort of of, of misanthrope. You uh, but know? I love. Th- but I maybe love he'll that. channel the Eeyore character, exactly. or the Eeyore character, or the idea of. I mean, if you think about it listen up philip is about a, a young guy like early 30s 20s something around there very frustrated with the world who at a certain point flees the city and moves upstate right so essentially the plot as we know it so far for the for this winnie the pooh is that christopher robin uh leaves his adult life and goes back to winnie the pooh and all the other animal friends in the forest so the idea of of sort of this disgruntled you know, man-child returning to to his friends. It may not be so far off. He must have done a good pitch. He must have been been in the room. I do know Alex a little bit from from around, and and he's not as much of a crank in real life as as sort of the the mystique would suggest. I think it it actually is a natural transition that he, he can work with people. The question is, is this a constructive decision? To go that route when well, making you know. some money is not a bad idea, and and uh, getting into Hollywood is not. And look, Hollywood has been raiding, you know, Broadway talent since Ben Hecht, you know, and Charles MacArthur, you know, yeah. it, it's been raiding, um, you know, novel novelists since you know F. Scott Fitzgerald and William Faulkner, you know, and, it's and been raiding directors for indie for directors decades. is just as long. So we've got you know Garth uh, Evans, you know, we've Gareth got Evans, who Gareth Evans, you know, Godzilla. the wind. Yeah. Monsters and and then Godzilla. You've got you've got Mark Webb from Five Hundred Days of Summer to uh, Spider Man. You know you've you've got a lot. And what and by the way, the way that, as you figured out with with Fast and, and Furious or Furious Seven, um, the the way they make these movies is is they 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 hire the live action guy. Uh, you know, in this case, we're not talking about. Um, uh, Alex Ross Perry directing, but when in these other instances with a, you know, they come in and they do the work with the actors and they 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 tell the story and there's an entire um, universe of specialists who are doing all the the visual effects and and putting it all together. But David Lowry, if you hire David Lowry, that that guy knows how to write, he knows how to direct, he knows how to shoot, he knows how to edit, he knows how to pretty, he knows it all. He's been a multitasker from day one. Yeah, no, he's he's just very creatively minded, and one thinks about Spike Jones, for example, who is also, I think, had a similar kind of very gentle sensibility towards the kind of creative 
means by which he expressed himself, you know, doing where the wild things are. I mean, that seems like a very natural transition in some ways. I just Although think, it turned out to be an awkward one. <laughs> well, it was, it was challenging. It was a big movie. It was movie. a problem, I mean, yeah. yeah. No, it, not but, everybody works well in the big... I mean, Darren Aronofsky, in my, art, in my humble view, um, is an example of someone who does better when he's on the indie side of the I would fence, say in everyone's uh, humble and not so humble view, yeah. that is true, including execs at Paramount. I mean, it's it. That's sort of what I find questionable, and I and I wonder about. It. I mean, you mentioned Mark Webb, right? He made Five Hundred Days of Summer. Then he goes off and he does two Spider-Man movies. Neither of them did that well, and those were, you know, where's the momentum that guy had? He was a new kid on the block, and those movies were kind of anonymous. And, and we'll see what happens with Colin Trevorrow, with with you know, going from from um, safety not guaranteed to Jurassic Jurassic Park. I'm not, you know, particularly eager for that one. And then I also wonder, you know, what... What work this person... And he's gone indie again. He's gone back into the indie side. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I guess the the question is that, that all of these people have to wonder and that people who care about film culture have to wonder is, is it constructive for somebody at an early stage of their career to allow themselves to take on these kinds of things. Because as you said in your piece, you know, these people will be cheaper. You know, they have a certain kind of currency that the studio can take advantage of. But maybe that makes them And less... they can be manipulative. Yeah. Ma- manipulated. Manipulated. Is... So maybe it's not constructive. Maybe this, is, maybe this is not a good trend for the sake of people who like movies made by folks at an early stage of their careers who show a lot of potential. But uh, it's debatable. I mean, I think some of these people make the transition, you know, someone like Christopher Nolan made the transition very well um, in in a step-by-step way. I mean, he he did Insomnia and then, you know, at at Warner Brothers, and then he did Batman Begins, and then he was on his way. And he has obviously amped up the the scale of each of these movies at each stage, um, and deservedly so. I, I think I think when when you're a young indie director for hire who's being manipulated and and told what to do, um, you know, at the studio level, uh, you know, what what is you don't get to use your own voice. You don't get to be who you really are. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting way of putting it. You know, it's it, what what are the priorities? I mean, sure, there's the money element to be taken into consideration. If if somebody like this can actually remain autonomous on some level or at least have the capacity to continue to produce work outside of these bigger deals and and these franchises and so forth maybe there's something constructive about that but i also wonder if the the kind of investment necessary for a franchise movie is maybe you know a little too much compromise to to really do what you want to do i mean tv is offering all kinds of different ways to dip one's toes in the more mainstream water without necessarily completely diving in. You see people like Lynn Shelton directing an episode of Mad Men or Joe Swanberg directing an episode of Looking, you know, and then there are other people like the Duplass brothers who are just, they can do everything. But in a lot of cases, it seems like maybe TV is starting to become the smarter way to explore these possibilities, don't you think? I actually agree, I, and I think I think someone like Jeremy Pedeswa is just a regular on many different series that HBO does, and they turn to him, and you know he can be an auteur doing you know personal independent work in Canada, and and then he can you know make a make a living and and improve his chops. I actually think that working in television is a way for people to become. I think it's great that Jodie Foster is directing in television. I think it's great that. 
that uh, Agnieszka Holland is doing very good work. And, and someone, you know, one of the great indie directors who I wish was, was working more, Carl Franklin, has just done fantastic work. Um, on these series, uh, he's he's you know he he did a number of the best episodes on House of Cards. I should point out that our uh, TV team actually now does a, a podcast uh, on TV topics. So if people want more of an in-depth look at what TV's doing right now, they should check that out. But from my perspective, what I think is really interesting about it is these filmmakers who we really value. As, as filmmakers are seeing new opportunities in TV. And one plug I would throw in there in that context is Hal Hartley, because I, I just want to mention Ned Rifle, which is opening this week. I know you haven't seen it, but it's... I'm a big fan of his, by yeah. the way. I have watched many, many, many of his films, and he was in Cannes, and I've interviewed him, and I think he's a fabulous filmmaker. I just haven't caught up with Ned Rifle but, yet. Yeah, and, but Ned Rifle, you know, it's it's the third in this Henry Fool trilogy of sorts. Not really a trilogy, but... Henry Fool was the first one about the Grimm family. The second one was Faye Grimm. Now there's Ned Rifle about the, the third generation of sorts, or really the second generation in that, in that family. But talking to Hal for a piece I did this week, he was saying how now he looks back at them and he sees that they're really episodes. And to some degree, that's where his mind goes in, in terms of how to tell stories. And it makes a lot of sense that he's working with Vimeo to release Ned Rifle, Vimeo's throwing their weight behind High Maintenance, which is a very, in some ways, cinematic kind of TV show in terms of the way that it's made, the way that it experiments with, with narrative, in terms, but, but it's, it's episodic. And what's compelling about what TV is doing for filmmakers is that it's allowing them to experiment with different kinds of exposure and different audiences so that they can evaluate the possibility of making a bigger project or not. You and know. it's also giving them uh, alternatives to the compressed two-hour, and we've talked about this before, uh, movie as the only format that means anything. And I think what people are doing now are, you know, from 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 Matt, Matt Weiner and his various his team at Mad Men to to to, to any number of other writer director types is is they're basically investing in an immersive environment and what the is in a weird way the hollywoods are doing this the studios are doing the same thing when they create franchises and when they seek to repeat or when richard linkletter takes three movies to tell a story and and over time and in, in in the before trilogy you know these these are different ways of 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 bringing audiences back to a familiar universe instead of having to start all over again every single time from scratch so speaking of the familiar universe, we did some more sort of anticipatory articles this week on the can lineup. Last week we were talking a bit about some of the stuff that other outlets were reporting that might be in there, and we dug a little bit deeper now. And what are you seeing in, in so far as what what can looks like this year? You made some interesting suggestions. Well, I was I was curious, you know, just to 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 give. To, I, I obviously I think the people that can do a great job of picking some amazing movies or we wouldn't be going back there every year. But um, you do see the same old auteurs. And by the way, R.I.P. Manuel de Oliveira, who was a regular there, he had 11 movies in the Cannes Film Festival, five of them in competition. And he was 100. How old was he? 107? 100, when he died? 106. 106. He was about yeah. to be 107. Yeah. yeah. Right? And, and um, you know, he really got his second wind when he was 102. He started making movies regularly when he was 55. So it's 
there's no it's an amazing like amazing it. i mean we think clint eastwood is yeah. remarkable but this yeah. guy you know he he had a new lease on life uh just just in the last decade but 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 i don't mean to 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 make that you know many of the auteurs in 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 the in the lineup and can you know vaults and and burnishes you know the the master auteurs you know over the years you know they t- they they often are very conservative about who who they put into competition or what how they define what makes uh, a good competition movie and so i was just you know going over the list and making suggestions as to you know these are some of the ones and by the way one of the things that struck me as i was doing it and, and this could be a different story but it really did strike me that um, that english is is the way now that that filmmakers it's been happening for a long time but there are a lot of movies that are going to make it into the can lineup because they're in english and because they have english-speaking movie stars in them and it'll be you know you'll see um these these really good uh filmmakers who made big hits some of them can make that transition better than others. So we'll see people like Sorrentino, you know, they're, they're bound to be in the competition. They're not going to be kicked to the, to the curb. Uh, we'll see uh, Jacques Odiar. We'll see, uh, you know, uh, well, Stephen We'll Frears. see The Lobster. I'm really excited about that one from Yorgos Lanthimos. That's an English-language film uh, from right. the Dog Tooth. So, you know, there's Yeah, so Alejandro Amenabar is working with Emma Watson and Ethan Hawke on regression. Um, you know, uh and then you have um Matteo Garone, uh, who's Garone, Italian. Yeah. Yeah, he's working on the tale the tale of tales with Salma Hayek, John C. Riley, Vincent Cassell, and Toby Jones. You know, I suppose it's um, on some level an extension of what we were talking about before. You know, it's like, is it a good thing or not for these people? You know, from a commercial perspective, maybe it, maybe it helps them to work with in the English language with these kind of globally recognizable faces. But is it necessarily the best application of their talent when a lot of it is sometimes derived from you know the, their particular national cinema and the the kind of people they collaborate there? You know, it just seems like there's there's always pressure on these people as soon as they break out to make movies for American audiences or to make more international movies. And sometimes I wonder if, is that necessarily like a pressure that you need to give into or not? Because everybody seems to do it now. Oh, I think it's a, it's partly a function of, of growth and financing. I mean, when I went to Columbia, one of the things that struck me when they said that, oh, Inaritu is a Hollywood filmmaker now, Del Toro is a, is a Hollywood filmmaker, Cuaron is a Hollywood filmmaker, that's what happens. Are these people able to become Hollywood filmmakers, which almost means, you know, making movies with global appeal, English language elements, but some of them can't do it. Sorrentino's the early years stars Michael Caine, Rachel Weisz, Harvey Keitel. I don't know if he can do it. He didn't do it well the last time. No, there's a lot of stuff that that doesn't look super promising, but with Can, as I said last time, you know, I always get excited about the stuff we don't know anything about because there is room for discovery there. It's not going to be the names that you recognize. It's going to be people who either surface in sidebars like Directors Fortnite or Critics Week or some random filmmaker who, you know, Thierry Fromeau decides to take a, a chance on, like Damian Cifron, who did Wild Tales. Of course, that was worth doing. That was the right thing, absolutely the right thing to, to do. 
Um, but there's, you know, there's stuff that I'm curious to see, you know, are they going to go for Kerry Fukunaga's Beast with No Name, which is a Netflix movie that doesn't have a theatrical distributor. I think they're a little old fashioned about making those judgments. They haven't been very friendly to animated films. They, why not put Pete Doctor's Inside Out in the competition? Why, why not? You know, well, what's I wrong mean, with that? I mean, I will give them credit in the sense that if you ask that question, sometimes you see the answer in the films themselves. And there, there is, there there is some a- aspect of a surprise to the way that this festival is curated and the way that you, you finally get to see these movies after so much anticipation, and, and then you can really judge, well, maybe he was right. Maybe this isn't a competition film by whatever kind of subjective standards they use. And that does make it interesting because it stimulates a conversation about the quality of these movies, irrespective of whatever political reasons get them into the festival in the first place. And, and that actually, I think, makes the job yes, really interesting. Yes, but it's important. It's important. I mean, we, we cast around, but, but, but honestly, if it's in competition... That puts a much bigger focus on it and makes it a more important movie. Why shouldn't Davis Guggenheim's He Named Me Malala be in competition? Why, why does the documentary... I mean, why I do women directors and documentaries automatically go to un certain regard, you know? I know, that's a problem. But, you know, French culture has all kinds of issues like that. They need to get uh, their system. So, in any case, it's a relatively quiet time now for new releases, but we'll have some good stuff to dig into next week, like the documentary Dior and I and Ex Machina are opening, so we've got more to get into, so stick with us. There's a lot happening even when the film festivals aren't going on. Till next time. You too, Eric. Snowstorm in Jackson when you and I met at a club called St. Sebastian's. But the sign said something different. I remember thinking that I didn't have a shot at Mississippi television. Told us which roads they were closing. There goes a rap show. Everybody knew you as the wife of a famous man. Everybody who knew said, There goes Dixon's girl again. Even the one.